0: Hey, everybody. I want to ask a favor. We want you to tell us a little bit about you. Please participate in a brief survey at CNN.com Audie. That's CNN.com A-U-D-I-E.
1: Hey, how are you? Bad. Uh, I had a panic like 20 minutes ago. I was like, oh, they want me to be on camera. And then I remembered you no. don't care if I'm on camera. We
0: care. We care, but we don't need to because, of course, you and I will be in hair and makeup shortly. Because we're going to be... For the
1: foreseeable future. For the foreseeable (laughs) future. (laughs) Hey,
0: we're having this conversation on Monday, January 15th. And it's kind of an odd duck of a day because it's a federal holiday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And then it's also the first vote after literal years of effort by Republican presidential candidates. Yeah,
1: it's Iowa caucus day
0: already. Even if you vote and then pass away, it's
1: worth it, remember. I don't think that President Trump is the right president to go forward. I think it's time for a new generational leader.
0: Uh, She's got this problem with ballistic podiatry, uh, shooting herself in the foot every other day, saying things that now she doesn't even take questions from people.
1: And anyone who is unwilling to say that he is unfit to be president of the United States Is unfit themselves to be president of the United States.
0: The final Des Moines Register poll is out. All signs are pointing in direction of Donald Trump. And if today is the first step on his march to a nomination, then another question's on the table. Who will Trump pick as a running mate? Now, there's one person I've spoken to about this topic who has some insight former Trump White House communications director and CNN contributor, Alyssa Farah Griffin. You also probably have seen her on ABC's The View. Alyssa, welcome to the assignment.
1: Audie, thank you for having me.
0: So uh, first, I want to talk about this in very rational ways. And then I want to talk about it in like what Trump might be doing. So... <laughs>
1: Which are two very different things. (laughs) I mean, let's
0: just be honest. So uh, Joe Biden, who, of course, was somebody's VP, had been both subjected to a search and then also conducted one when he landed on Kamala Harris. And a lot of different names came up in that search. But there was like a committee Mm -hmm. and they did a big vetting and they like looked into people and there
1: was a process. Well, and as there always is traditionally, I should say, um, in these, when these decisions are made, I mean, you, yes, there's the vetting. There's the, is something going to come up from their past that could be harmful? Do they have the qualifications? Do they check the boxes on policy? And then there's also the question of what demographics do they potentially perform well with or even outperform? The top of the ticket with. And Um, I want to
0: add some to that because I feel like when I thought about this in the past, they're the people who you bring on, as you said, to help you win a demographic, win a state, but they help in that kind of campaigning election process. And sometimes they're even there because their campaigning ability, right? Their charisma.
1: Yes, probably more unsuccessful example of this would be Sarah Palin with John McCain. Ooh, let's um, dig in because when
0: like, she, I was following his campaign. I was on the trail. And when she came on, it was like lightning, beautiful, a governor, Republican credentials and just like charisma in spades. And also, as we now know, the prototype to the Trump era.
1: Right. And so think of it. She represented a number of those things that we mentioned, which was great on the stump, that sort of campaign X factor, that intangible that you either have it or you don't. She could go out and she could gin up a crowd, speak in front of 20,000 people. The constituency of, you know, he was running against the first African-American candidate for president at that time. He wanted to do something that also felt historic, having a woman on the ticket. She had these conservative credentials with her, but, but, but the vetting, Um, We we know now after the fact and there have been books written about it, it became abundantly clear she actually did not have the depth of knowledge and policy experience that would even kind of be a baseline for somebody to be vice president.
0: And we say the vetting, we mean there is it is someone's job to make phone calls to all the people you worked with, (laughs) to people who knew you where you were young. They're quite literally the operatives job is to ferret out any information that is helpful to understanding who they are and also maybe baggage, et cetera. But in this case, it was also like, can this person govern?
1: Correct. Because, I mean, you're a heartbeat from the presidency if you win. And I mean, we saw how quickly that fell apart. There was the infamous Katie Couric interview um, where it became abundantly clear to a lot of McCain advisors that she didn't have a baseline knowledge of foreign policy, but even domestic policy, which she was asked to name, you know, Supreme Court cases and couldn't. That, I think, is kind of remembered in modern political history as one of the biggest failings in terms of decisions around a vice presidential candidate. But what some people will still say to this day is it did get him a boost toward the end, like it may have actually gotten him the boost. So it's always this decision of, is the risk worth the reward?
0: That brings us to the most recent And insane history. I feel like I can say that because his life was (laughs) threatened in the process, (laughs) which is not usually what you think when you're going to be vice president, right? Like you're supposed to be a heartbeat away. Um, But Mike Pence obviously was a running mate to Donald J. Trump and I'll rattle off a few, and you can tell me if I'm right in terms of what he was perceived to be bringing to the ticket. He had all the credentials as kind of a conservative's conservative because he had been in talk radio, right? And then he had been a legislator and he had sat in a corner office. And so he brought a lot of the sort of know how of governance, which people at the time thought Donald Trump did not have because nobody knew. <laughs> What he had other than a celebrity at the time.
1: Completely. So in in addition to that, or you alluded to this, is Mike Pence was the chairman of the Republican Study Committee, which at the time was kind of the precursor to the Freedom Caucus. He was a conservative warrior in the House of Representatives. And we should say at one point you worked for the House Freedom Caucus. I, I did work for the Freedom Caucus back in the day before it went into a full like extension of the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. But all that to say... He was beloved by outside conservative groups, the American Conservative Union, the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Um, Oh, yeah, the faith thing. He was like the evangelicals guy. Beloved by evangelicals. There probably is not somebody who at that time uh, resonated more with them. And that was a big vulnerability of Trump's. I mean, Access Hollywood was after he was chosen, but think of the years of infidelity, divorces, things about his his character, and also that he was not, by any means a person of faith, nor did he pretend to be. There's actually a famous story that there was still kind of last minute push for Trump to go another direction. There were a number of people kind of jockeying for who their person would be. And Paul Wait, Manafort- can you alleged, say who one of the other options were? So to be honest, he had wanted to pull from somebody who was running against him in 2016. And my understanding so is that's that you're Ted
0: Cruz, you Marco Rubio, your are yes. Yeah. It,
1: and, and I believe they had run vetting both on Cruz and I want to say Rand Paul. Don't quote me, but um, they wanted someone who was kind of that generation of the conservative flank or whatever. But uh, Mike Pence also, by the way, had been a two term governor at this point. But his his popularity was sinking big time in Indiana. And this was sort of a lifeline for Trump bringing him on the ticket and a lifeline for Mike Pence. Mm. And there's a famous story that I was not there for, but it's been reported that Paul Manafort actually delayed Trump's plane from taking off for the purpose of convincing him to pick Pence and not getting him to a meeting where someone was pushing someone else. And for what it's worth, I will to this day say it was absolutely the right decision. Having a conservative's conservative, evangelical's evangelical say, you can trust me and you can trust Donald Trump, and you can put your weight behind him. Mike Pence 100% helped put him over the finish line. Now, how it ended four years later, I think we could all question if that was the best decision for Mike Pence, but it's unquestionable that Pence was instrumental in getting Trump elected. Now, here's where we
0: are always full disclosure on this show you are a big Pence supporter.
1: Yes. And to be honest, like you were um, press secretary for him at one (laughs) point. Oh, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) So so we felt a little bit
0: of that just then as you telling us why this was such a good match.
1: And and to be honest, though, which I I believe I've shared before, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. So I was actually someone who even as much as I loved Mike Pence in the House and thought um, very highly of him, it still wasn't enough to put me over the edge to support the ticket. I ended up writing in and believe it or not, I wrote in. Mike Pence and Paul Ryan, which sounds so ridiculous today. It but, um, utterly
0: does. And we should <laughs> note, of course, Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the House, also one time running mate to Mitt Romney in a choice I, that was really more of a copy paste situation than anything complimentary. Like <laughs> they are the same guy. I don't really know what was Ryan was bringing copy-paste. to that ticket, <laughs> except a deep love for like uh like alt-rock bands, I feel like. And
1: great hairline, but they both have that. So (laughs) um, Trump didn't win Iowa, but he did better than expected, finishing, you know, just behind Ted Cruz, kind of locked things up in New Hampshire, and then um, getting into the general when Pence is on the ticket. Mike Pence is somebody who's really good at retail politics. Meaning he can shake the hands, he can work the room, he can raise the money. Kiss the babies. And yeah, he's not Ron DeSantis, actually. And it it might surprise people because Pence is not exactly full of charisma in a big format. But in the more, you know, there's 20 people in a room, you're going to pray with someone before the meal, you're going to hug this person and ask about the family. That's a strength he has, which was not a natural thing for Donald Trump, who's more of, I'm going to pull... 10,000 people and do my pep rally kind of thing. So I think he was the right choice for that. And I mean, fast forward, also because he certified the election, performed the the bare minimum of his duty, but still saved our country from the brink.
0: Okay, that's a good place to pause. (laughs) I'm here (laughs) with Alyssa Farah Griffin. We'll be back in a minute. I know you're busy. We all are. But if you have 15 minutes or so every week and want to better understand the news, I've got a podcast I think you should check out. I'm David Rind, and I'm the host of CNN One Thing. Every week, I call up a plugged-in CNN correspondent, and we talk about a story they're covering. We break it down carefully and with context, without the unnecessary noise, so you can get on with your week. That's CNN One Thing. Listen on your favorite podcast app. All right, we're back with Alyssa Farah Griffin, who is, of course, a former Trump White House communications director and a CNN contributor. And Alyssa, we left our conversation talking about Mike Pence. So the elephant in the room here is after January 6th, after Mike Pence made the decision to certify the election, despite what his boss and many thousands of people outside Congress were calling for, Clearly, that relationship was severed between Mike Pence and Trump.
1: Yes, very much so. Um, my understanding is they spoke after January 6th briefly, and, which is
0: crazy. But yes,
1: and basically didn't. To me, it's crazy. And basically didn't speak again for for at least more than six months. And I think their communication since has been very, very sparse. Um, obviously, Pence then decided to launch his own campaign for president. And uh, let's not even go down
0: the rabbit hole there because it didn't work. It didn't work. Like, I want to talk about Mike Pence because I heard you talk so lovingly about Mike Pence on set. But like the voters did not come to Pence. And in fact, it feels like the the base as we know it, the sort of Trump backing base have a visceral dislike of Pence for his actions on that day.
1: Exactly. And, and spoiler real quick, because it's relevant to the broader Veepstakes conversation, is Mike Pence's utter lack of popularity in the, the modern current GOP speaks to just the tectonic shift in the party that there has been doing kind of the, the bare minimum of upholding your constitutional role to certify the election is enough for him to be just persona non grata with the base of the party now.
0: All right. So let's talk about Trump now, his campaign now. His campaign managers are Susie Wiles and Chris Lasavita. Tell us a little bit about them and kind of how they would think about a pick.
1: So these two probably represent the most sophisticated and probably talented operatives that Trump to date has had um, sort of at the helm of his campaign. Uh, This isn't Brad Parscale where he's essentially running a digital operation, doesn't really have any experience in presidential politics um, or even a Bill Stepien who'd kind of worked at the state level but wasn't seen as in this kind of tier of operatives.
0: Right. So in 2016, the people who gravitated towards Trump were the people who were basically taking a bet on what seemed like a complete wild card long shot. But the people now, they're joining a former president's campaign.
1: Exactly. And Susie herself is a former Florida uh, GOP chair. Chris has run a number of races all over the country, has been in, in the Republican politics game for, for over 20 years. They are already beginning vetting. Um, they're already beginning poll testing some of the candidates. And they're they're looking at the things that you traditionally would, as we talked about. Who helps with demographics? Now, two demographics, I should say three, but I think there's two they're thinking strongly about. Women. Um, especially the suburban women we talk about in elections. And
0: number one, people have often thought that Donald Trump was soft here because of maybe language that he used because of um, sexual assault kind of allegations against him. But now there's also the added issue of the end of Roe v. Wade, which he takes credit for, but is also a problem for Republicans on the campaign trail.
1: And he recognizes it's a problem, which is even more notable. So they're, they're looking at women, um, somebody who will resonate with them. This is where they're looking very strongly at Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's now in her first term as Arkansas governor, but is also former press secre- White House press secretary under Trump. Now, the interesting thing about Sarah is she's one of the few human beings that I know Trump has genuine affection for. I think he sees her truly as a loyalist. I think he sees her as somebody who took a bet on him when it wasn't popular to. As soon as Huckabee's campaign folded in 2016, she joined him at a time when it was not popular to go to Donald Trump. Sarah's X factor, I'd say, is sort of that she can go out and campaign and she can raise money. She's, um, I don't wanna say surprisingly popular, but I I worked with Sarah, you know, she's surprisingly popular and formidable in the GOP. I think the downside with her would be two things. She's junior in her time in office. You know, she's in her first term, and she was kind of seen as a staffer before. And the other is she's incredibly conservative. She's the daughter of evangelical Mike Huckabee. I have a hard time seeing how she would talk about the abortion issue in a way that would bring comfort to suburban women. Is that what's
0: been happening in Arkansas? Has she spoken publicly in the last year or two
1: about that issue? I've not seen her speak about it, and I don't want to misstate if she has, but i Can't imagine this is something she's delving into. The other person who's getting some buzz is Kristi Noem, a popular governor of South Dakota. She's honestly been jockeying for this position for some time. During COVID, she actually used some COVID funds that went to the state to kind of boost the state of South Dakota on the airwaves in Washington, D.C., and New York. Right. She basically refused
0: to issue a statewide mandate to wear face masks. So in the height of COVID, she's out there saying, look, we're not going to be doing this. She also had been endorsed by Trump in 2018, and she's South Dakota's first female governor. So you have that sort of supporting uh, a a woman rising to power, but she also has been loyal to him.
1: Exactly. Um, And she's telegenic. Um, Her downside is this. I've heard internally she's just not high on Trump's list personally, but also... Keep an eye on this. She's actually seen as part of the old guard. She was a Paul Ryan sort of protege in the House. It's so funny to think she was actually a fairly moderate Republican when she served in the House of Representatives for a number of terms and then sort of reinvented herself as this culture warrior when she became governor. I think that Trump and the team around him and his outside influencers, the Steve Bannons of the world, are going to be very strong in pushing him to not pick
0: somebody who's from the old guard. Can I underscore this? Because you're saying old guard. That's 2011. (laughs) Like, I remember covering (laughs) that House Republican freshman class. And she was, um, I think the term is, it's kind of like a liaison to Republican leadership, right? Like right. you, you yep. at the time helping Speaker John Boehner kind of manage like the freshman class may want this and, and she's going back and forth. And she was a powerful supporter of Trump policies. So the idea that like that's not enough, right? Like that's not far back enough because you're connected to what you're calling the old
1: guard. But that is honestly how his world works. It doesn't make sense. And to be honest, you're going to be hard pressed to find somebody who actually has the qualifications and credentials to be a VP that doesn't have some tie to the Paul Ryan, John Boehner era of Republican politics or even the Mitt Romney era of Republican politics.
0: So that leaves people who are tied to the Trump era of Republican politics and very specifically supporting his um
1: His lies about the election. Correct. And I think you allude to something really important there. I think that even though he'd be in a second term, so it would likely it would be a different scenario, I think they're looking at the potential VP through the lens of would they have done quote unquote the right thing on January 6th, meaning not certifying the result. What they do not want is another Mike Pence. They don't want someone who's going to put the Constitution over loyalty to Donald Trump, frankly.
0: And even further along, I've noticed Vivek Ramaswamy has made his campaign more or less about saving Trump, actually using that term, that these legal challenges are clearly a way of victimizing Trump in some way and that somehow voting for Vivek is somebody who is going to make sure nothing happens to your guy, Donald Trump, if he's elected. I don't know how much that's working with the voters, but I think it says something about what people in the field feel is required to draw support.
1: Well, absolutely. And that brings me to my third. I've got two more for you and then a wild card. Um, (laughs) Elise Stefanik, also jockeying so hard for this. I mean, The flip on the head of the Elise Stefanik that the public knew when she was elected, the youngest woman at the time to ever serve in the House of Representatives, a consummate moderate, someone who'd served in the George Bush White House, uh, did debate prep for Paul Ryan when he was running as VP, now morphing into basically the figurehead of MAGA in the House is basically a stunning 180. But it is it's performative with the intent of becoming potentially Trump's running mate. And
0: she had a very high profile moment just in December, right, where she was questioning the university presidents during that televised hearing on anti-Semitism, which in effect, I mean, two at least two of those presidents no longer have office. And Harvard ranks the lowest when it comes to protecting Jewish students. This is why I've called for your resignation. And your testimony today, not being able to answer with moral clarity, speaks volumes. I yield back. So that
1: was a a rather big moment for her. Yes, and she was definitely capitalizing on it, um, you know, tweeting it out and sharing it. And then she recently called the January 6th uh, folks who had actually been sentenced to jail sentences for doing things that were wrong, like assaulting police officers, for example. She called them hostages on NBC. I have
0: concerns about the treatment of January Six hostages. Uh, I have concerns. We have a role...
1: In- she would like this job. Her name has been floated. It's been discussed. But I think she is seen even by Trump as a chameleon, somebody who kind of adopted to him late. But she also has a very short resume, just candidly. Yes, she rose the ranks of House Republican leadership quickly, But before that, her roles were all staff level. It would be hard to say that that's someone who could be a heartbeat from the presidency. And the final one I would say is this. I'm curious your thoughts, Audie. Tim Scott. He's not endorsed Uh yet. (laughs) Um, I think that he will endorse Trump. I think that the Trump team is waiting for South Carolina to have him come out and back Trump over Haley. And he helps with a group that Donald Trump has shockingly made some real movement with, which is Black men. The, the numbers are, I mean, they're still small compared to what Democrats pull, but he has been slowly getting more support from Black men. So the thought is he's this kind of kinder, softer tone. He is an evangelical, and he could perhaps bring out this constituency that traditionally does not turn out for a Republican presidential candidate.
0: Okay, so just to give people some background on Tim Scott, who is a Black senator from South Carolina, you know, when he first joined, I remember he, as a congressman, he declined to join the Congressional Black Caucus. He basically was like, my campaign is not about race. And I think that's like a good thing to understand about him going forward in terms of how he's always presented himself to the electorate. He also, in recent years, after the reckoning with George Floyd, became the point person for drafting a bill on race and police reform and took a lot of heat from the black community about that. And then later, after his bill dropped, it did not get support from Democrats. And the whole process kind of fell apart under his watch. I don't know if that's your read of it, but he has been somebody who. The Club for Growth likes him, right? Like he has <laughs> he has a kind of like a moral thing that people like. He also has been very aggressive in both talking about race to a Republican audience without creating a scenario where any kind of apology or acknowledgement or any of these kind of post George Floyd Values are brought up, right? He's not saying, white people, this is your fault in some way. He is always talking about moving forward. And I can imagine that that appeals to the Trump folks.
1: Very much so. And he actually he had a, a fairly big moment for his uh, fairly short lived campaign on, on my show, on The View, um, where he sort of went head to head with be Goldberg and Sonny Hostin on the issue of race. That is a dangerous, offensive. Disgusting message to send to our young people today—that the only way to succeed
0: is by being the exception. I will tell you that if my life is the exception, uh, I can't imagine. It is, but it's not actually. Here's here's. It's been 114 years. Yeah. So so the fact of the matter is, we've had an African American president, African American uh, vice president.
1: We've had two. And it really it worked. It got him a, a bit, you know, a lot of earned media. The right was very happy with it, but it didn't materialize in support. And I actually think that if he were to be chosen, he would maybe be added to the ticket under the thought of he gives permission for black men who are Trump curious to come and support him. But I actually think he would end up being a challenge talking about the abortion issue. Trump is looking for somebody who.
0: And in fact, was one of the first asked on the campaign trail and more or less kind of flubbed the answer.
1: Exactly. He, he's, um, he is a very conservative uh, individual, and I don't think that you're going to see him being sort of the voice of moderation that connects with women. So even while he may help with one constituency or you, it, there may be a guess that he would help with it, I think he would hurt with this other. So this is honestly, I mean, the way we do this now is so sophisticated. There, there's numbers and data that are going to be looked at to make the determination of who, who gets the most of the pot of voters. But can I offer one horrifying um, wild card? Okay, horrifying (laughs) is your
0: adjective. I don't want to get in trouble on the internet. (laughs) What is
1: it? Well, in horrifying, because it would break my faith in in humanity, I think there's a non-zero chance that he would pick Nikki Haley if he ends up locking up the nomination. And I say that based on a number of things. But one anecdote, when in the summer of 2020, when his election numbers were not looking great, I was in the Oval Office with him. I believe former White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany was there as well. And Trump said, hey, hey, ladies, what do you think if I replaced Mike with Nikki Haley? And we just, I think I jumped in and was like, no, that would signal chaos and desperation. And he didn't ultimately do it. But the long and short is Jared Kushner and Ivanka have long held Nikki Haley in, in very high esteem. Uh, they think that she carries herself both on the world stage, but domestically in a way that's more reputable than the brand that Donald Trump has created. We also know that
0: Trump is not opposed to embracing a rival. He's not opposed to humiliating a rival, see Mitt Romney, but he is not opposed to bringing someone into the fold. And I would count in that, I'm thinking maybe like a Ted Cruz... Uh, et cetera. I see Marco Rubio is now is endorsing him as you know, he's always been supportive, but formally endorsing him. And all of the chatter in cable news in a way has been about whether Nikki Haley would accept that kind of job. So I should say both of us are speculating right now. How do you think about this question?
1: I wish I had the faith that she wouldn't. But Chris Christie said, you know, she would crawl over glass to be the vice president. I don't put it that strongly at all. I think it's you'd be hard pressed to find an elected Republican or former elected who wouldn't jump at the opportunity to be vice president of the United States, even knowing how it ended for Mike Pence. I mean, the House, the office, the West Wing, the power, the world stage, the security detail. If you are an ambitious person, which you are if you're in politics at that level, it's hard to picture someone saying no.
0: I want to add two thoughts to this. One is that I have heard in right-wing circles very tough criticism of Nikki Haley, that she's some kind of plant, that she's like an infiltrator, that she's the establishment worming her way into MAGA, and that that's why they don't want her anywhere near the White House, which tells me that they are afraid that this is an option. And lastly, I think I'm wondering, doesn't a lot of this also just come down to who Trump likes?
1: So there is a lot of MAGA pushback on the idea of Nikki uh, that's very real. Donald Trump hears it and he listens to those people. However, not a single one of them um, is going to not vote for Donald Trump because Nikki Haley is on the ticket. The question of who he likes, I think, is huge.
0: And not just likes, like you have to quote unquote, we've often heard reports, does someone look the part? Right. Does he think they look good in all the ways that you can use that term.
1: Well, and, and I, I'm gonna say this as sort of a blind item because it's, it's just a, a terrible thing to say, but I, one of the candidates I mentioned, I witnessed him saying that they did not look the part. Not gonna say who that is, but that is actually a way he talks openly. Most of us maybe would think that, but they wouldn't say it out loud. Like attractiveness um, or just that they- It was, well, we'll say it was a woman and it was dealing with the attractiveness issue. That's something he thinks about. This is a man whose, you know, career is in television. It's in how you look. It's in how you're received on the big screen. So that's, that's going to be a factor. I mean, not for nothing, I think, you see those who are jockeying for really, you know, thinking about their appearance and how they present. Because we know the kind of man Donald Trump is. It's, that's going to matter to him as much as, you know, your resume is. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I had to, to share that. I so- can I... One thing I do want to say, there's there's a lot of this sort of Internet scuttlebutt of will it be Tucker Carlson or Carrie Lake, like one of these diehard MAGA types? It will not be. And the reason why is not the reason it shouldn't be. Donald Trump, I believe, is running for president to stay out of jail. He realizes there's a very real chance he'll be convicted in at least one of the federal cases against him. He is not going to run the risk of picking somebody who is off-putting, who's not a winner, who may alienate massive constituencies just because they are like, more like him and maybe more appealing to his base. He's going to truly look at who is going to get him across the finish line. And I said earlier, horrifying the notion of Nikki Haley. It's horrifying to me as somebody who thinks he's unfit and can never be president again. Nikki Haley could really get him across the finish line against President Biden.
0: OK, Alyssa, thank you so much for spending extra time with us to dig into this, because there's a lot to talk about and people will be talking about it for the next couple of months. CNN political commentator Alyssa Farah Griffin, thank you so much. Thank you, Audie. That's all for today. We'll be back with new episodes on Thursday. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Dan Bloom. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. Dan DeZula is our technical director, and Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. We got support from Haley Thomas, Alex Manesseri, Robert Mathers, John DeNora, Lenny Steinhardt, James Andrus, Nicole Pesaru, and Lisa Amorel. Thanks, as always, to Katie Hinman. I'm Audie Cornish. Thank you for listening.